Well, I jumped in and raced through this one in the first uh, session, and, and I wonder if I'm not going to have to do that a little bit again. I'll, I'll cut through the pleasantries. My name's Josh. If you're visiting, hey, it's really great to have you with us. And we've been doing um, a series called King of Love, God's Upside-Down Kingdom in Jesus' Own Words. Uh, we're about three or four weeks into that. And Last week, Pastor Dwayne, as Sherilyn mentioned, um, talked to us about uh, some of this stuff relative to the, the, the story of the Good Samaritan. And um, uh, he talked in a way that, that a number of the preachers have, Graham, Joy, myself, about the upside-down kingdom. And it just occurred to me, he was doing a great job of bringing uh, certain dimensions of it and, and helping us to see them clearly. But I thought... Perhaps it would be good to spend just a bit of time clarifying what we mean when we talk about the upside-down kingdom, because it's a little bit of a, uh, an unusual phrase. Uh, one of the things that has been really clear to me as I've thought about it is we have room amongst us to kind of come to a more unified or clearer understanding of what we're talking about when we're talking about the upside-down kingdom. But it's definitely not something that we've struggled to live. I think about the community here, and there's just so many people who are about the work that I'm going to preach about this morning. Whether or not you've thought about it in terms of the upside-down kingdom and the terms we're using, I see you live it out, and I'm so grateful to be um, in a Cheryl instead of a big family with you guys because I'm inspired every day by by the people in co- this community, by you guys. So uh, I don't know if you have ever heard this phrase dropped. I, I imagine there wouldn't be too many of us who have maybe tried it out, except for maybe me. But I don't, have, you, have you come across this kind of thing that happens sometimes in public life where someone says, don't you know who I am? This, uh, the veal was cold. Can't believe you'd send out cold veal I- in your restaurant. Don't you know who I am? I'm the famous food critic, Tony Connolly. Um, <laughs> you, know, you know the thing that, you, you know that, you know that phrase. It's like there's this, it, it, ca- it does come out, I think, uh, in hospitality context somehow for some reason, but where someone brings a sense of entitlement. Um, I mentioned in the first service that uh, I have heard uh, in hospitality circles these days, so very con- contemporary, contemporaneously I didn't mean to say that word there you go (sighs) we've put that behind us I don't have to say that again Uh, in the world that we're living in oftentimes sort of influence uh, is is linked to how many followers you've got on social media and so there's this phenomenon of influencers going out and saying hey I'm going to visit my restaurant with your restaurant with my friend uh, we'll post about it on Instagram. Why don't you say give it to us for free? Or why don't you see this product because I'll feature it on my Instagram feed. Rob knows. Yeah, Rob knows the Lord. He's growing younger. Um, so you might think of of that relative to the, the word entitlement or self-entitlement. Uh, in that kind of entitlement is actually... Is actually kind of an anathema to Australians we don't we don't appreciate that I I feel like in America um, people are uh, are more sort of status oriented maybe maybe in the UK as well 
Um, I rem- I've sort of been quite confronted by that when I've travelled at how people will say insist upon you calling them doctor if they've got a doctorate and all that kind of stuff. We as Australians, we're more egalitarian than that and it gives us the heebie-jeebies generally if people have a sense of entitlement. Um, but I do think we do have entitlements. Uh, we do have a sense of self-entitlement as Australians. The thing is, your senses of self-entitlement tend to be hidden from you. Um, but we'll talk about that another time when Graham gets me to preach a series on uh, the idolatry of Australian nationalism. We'll put that to, <laughs> to the side for now, though. So the word entitlement actually isn't a negative word in and of itself. It's not what we'd call a pejorative, even though we often use it as a kind of, oh, that person's so entitled. It can actually be used in a positive or a negative way. So here's the positive sense of the word entitlement. It's the feeling that you have the right to do or have what you want without having... Oh, that's the negative, sorry. I've flicked past. Oh, I've gone too far now. Um, something that you have a right to do or have, or the right to do or have something. So uh, th- there, there are worthy entitlements, right? You wor- I mean, we generally would say if you work for something, uh, you are entitled to it. I mentioned that our legal system here in Australia, we're very blessed, is based on a kind of Christian understanding of what a human being is. And a Christian doesn't understand of a hum- what a human being is. It doesn't matter. You are made in God's image. And so you're not worth less or more than anyone else. If you, as Dwayne said last week, if you have breath, you're entitled in our culture and in our legal framework to certain rights and privileges that are common to all people. Isn't that a good thing? We could take that for granted, couldn't we? The negative sense is this sense of self-entitlement that we might use. So someone who has a feeling that they have a right or to do or have something just based on who they are for one reason or another. And I was thinking about what's the difference between like the positive sense and the negative sense of entitled. When is it okay to be entitled to something? When is entitlement not a dirty word? And when is it a dirty word? When is it wrong? And I came to this conclusion. So it's one of my own conclusions. You can, you can uh, if you're taking notes, go JBN question mark because I'm not drawing on any other authority than my brain. But I thought about this, that the difference between being entitled in the positive sense and being entitled in the negative sense is a matter of shared values or not. Shared or not shared values. Let me explain that a little bit. We're in Queensland and, um, you know, whether we're comfortable with it or not, Wally Lewis is the king, right? We're a rugby league state. Uh, the way that I sort of explained it in the first uh, session is, sure, if you're down at the Regatta Hotel and Wally Lewis walks in, everybody knows who Wally Lewis is. But actually, even Wally Lewis could walk into a church in Queensland and everyone would know, hey, there's the king. <laughs> Enough people would know that when you, Paul, went, who's that uh, God for uh, man... But if someone who was, you know, significant for a different type of achievement, let's say I I picked Les Murray this morning just because he's probably Australia's most famous poet of our generation. If he walked in either to the Regatta Hotel or here, people wouldn't have any idea. In fact, he could probably walk into a poetry event and many people wouldn't know what he looked like just because it's not really part of the common 
value of Queensland. So in Queensland, uh, uh, we've got Wally Lewis as the king and we've got footballers who've played for Queensland just on the next rung down. There may be footballers who've played for a Queensland club on the next rung down and then Queenslanders in general on the next run down, and then right at the bottom of the barrel, there's people from New South Wales, am I right? That's kind of how this hierarchy works. And it's for this reason that, it, uh, you know, someone who's the equivalent of Wally Lewis in Victoria, where they're all about AFL, like Kevin Bartlett could walk in, and no one would have any idea who he was here in Queensland. And if he came in with an attitude, we'd be like, where do you get off, mate? You're, you're a nobody. So there's this sense in which, because we don't share the values of Victorians, praise God. Is anyone grateful for that right now? You know that stuff I said about a sort of Christian basis to our society? (laughs) It's not the case for Victoria. Um, Because there's shared values in Queensland, we kind of know what the hierarchy's like, right? And so Wally Lewis has a sense of honour somehow. There's a statue of him. Uh, he, there might be certain entitlements and, and benefits that flow his way because he is the king. Um, to unpack that uh, a, a little bit further, so the, the, the values of a context, society, community, determine the entitlements. The people at the top are the most entitled in the positive or negative body, the positive sense. There's everybody else and then entitled to the least honour, the least privilege, the least power, the least money. You kind of get what I'm saying, right? The top of the hierarchy is a good place to be because you get all the stuff that people in that context want. Um, If you're not at the top, you get less of it. And um, uh, uh, Dwayne, last week, he took this image of the triangle. I've grabbed it from him. And and he said, well, to talk about the upside-down kingdom is to maybe imagine and this doesn't really work in an engineering sense, uh, a triangle that balances on the point, right? That's a, that's a tricky idea. Where does it come from? Well, it comes from uh, quite a lot of passages in the New Testament that are a bit like this, and I think there'll be phrases in here, the first shall be last, that sort of thing, that, that you'll kind of be able to connect together with this reading. And it comes from the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And it's a section here from chapter 9 into chapter 10 where Jesus is beginning to tell his disciples about what's going to happen to him at Calvary. And they're just not seeing it, just not getting it. So, taking up from verse 32, they were on their way up to Jerusalem and Jesus was leading the way and the disciples were astonished. Well, those that followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law. This is the NIV, by the way. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James John, so here just not getting it. He's just said, this is what's going to happen to me, your Messiah. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to him and they say, teacher, um, (laughs) entitlement maybe, entitlement alert, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. 
Jesus maybe understandably responds, um, okay, well, what are you going to ask me for? What, what, what can I do for you? To which James and John reply, let one of us sit on your right hand and the other your left in your glory. Jesus says, and I want to suggest at this point, that he says this with a heaviness of heart. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptised with the baptism that I am baptised with? We can, say James and John, ever ever bold, brave, ready for whatever comes. And maybe with even more heaviness, Jesus replies to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism that I am baptised with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. The reason why I say, and I'll unpack it a bit in a minute, that Jesus might have said that with some heaviness, is actually um, James uh, met met a, a rather grisly end. He was beheaded. And John, uh, while he lived to a, a, an old age, encountered a lot of opposition in his life, uh, to put it mildly. So when the ten, the other disciples, heard about this, they were indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers are over the Gentiles. Jesus has to actually look outside of Israel at that time for ridiculous power. Um, but politically, officials over the Gentiles lorded over them, and then high officials with you. Instead, whoever wants to be come great amongst you must first be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There, my friends, we have a picture of the upside-down kingdom. And so perhaps one way of thinking about this is to kind of flip the triangle upside down, like Pastor Duane said. Jesus says, if you want to be the greatest, you've got to be the servant of all. So the upside-down apex is the servant of all, and we'll understand that that's Christ himself. Then there's everyone else whom he's the servant of. But what of that middle ground? Where are you and I in this kingdom? There's something challenging about this teaching of the kingdom because it's like, well, in general life, if the pyramid's this way up, we, we, we want to aspire to something, right? It's true that uh, entitlements flow to us when we do the right thing. If we work hard, we get paid for it. If we're good at something, our reputation grows. How do we not operate that way if that's not how the kingdom operates? Well, I want to suggest this morning that uh, the kingdom does operate somewhat differently. And the very question of where we are in the hierarchy is something that I believe that Jesus wants to liberate us from. King, King times aspiration. I mean, I've got to admit at times I have it, or I think I have church aspiration, the uh, fact that I want to be good at what I do do i want to you know i want to grow in that how do we handle this well jesus gives us some <laughs> kind of difficult ways of thinking about it the cup and baptism what does it mean to be aspirational in the kingdom you see here jesus um 
his disciples reply to him, let us sit at your right and left hand. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? In the Old Testament, the cup is an image of judgment. Uh, Sometimes an image of blessing, but more often in the Old Testament, and I've got some scriptures there that you could look up if you're taking notes, but just to show you that this stuff didn't all come out of my head. Normally, the cup in the Old Testament denotes the punishment of the wicked. Uh, In Isaiah, it can be used of the suffering of God's people, which will be passed from them to their oppressors. So Jesus is saying to James and John, the way to honour involves suffering here. I'm going to suffer. Can you follow me in that? Baptism is similarly a difficult image in this instance. Jesus uh, is sort of coining a metaphor which pins the suffering plant death. To quote um, a New Testament scholar here who I've quoted before, R.T. France, he said, but in the narrative context, we must suppose that Jesus coined a remarkable new metaphor drawing on his disciples' familiarity with the dramatic physical act of John's baptism, but using it somewhat along the lines of the secular usage above to depict the suffering and death into which he will soon be plunged. So you can see why, with a heaviness, Jesus might have said, well, actually, maybe you guys will. Maybe you will drink the cup. Maybe you will be baptised to an extent. But who wants that? right? That's not something I aspire to. I think something of our very nature means we can't aspire to that. So what does it mean to be working in the kingdom for the kingdom? I want to suggest kingdom of God aspirations are not about hierarchy, but about values. So the kingdom of God is upside down to the extent that it's not about where we end up, but how we go about things, how we live. It's values, not hierarchy. And the power, and I've preached about this from uh, Mark 9, where Jesus says, actually, the power of the kingdom of God is Calvary. So the power of the kingdom is self-sacrificial. Whoever wants to be of all. The most valuable commodity, and this is another way of thinking about it, the most valuable commodity in the kingdom of God is love. Self-sacrificial love. It is the gold. It is the the currency of the kingdom. If it's useful to think about the kingdom being upside down, it's the gold that rests at the bottom, which underlines everything of worth in the kingdom of God. And I think in doing this, Christ actually wants to set us free of a kind of aspirational identity. It's almost impossible to be aspirational in the sense of the kingdom of God because if we want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, ironically, inevitably, we will find ourselves outside it. It's not about what we can do and achieve. It's about whether we flow with the values of the kingdom. And so, rather than being focused on where we end up, near the top 
or the bottom this morning, I want to get us to think about it in these terms. The lived values of the kingdom of God are like this. Honor flows to the bottom where the servants are. The greatest to them being Jesus. And love one else is up to where everyone else is. Verse pyramid to you are uncles towards that inverse pyramid through his servants. And love flows out to everyone in the world for whom Jesus gave his life. For whom Jesus suffered and was willing to die. I'm going to get the band up. They're going to um, begin just to lead us. This is a tricky thing, right? We're used to having bearings, maybe, in life. We, we know where we sit in society. We know uh, where our strengths, where our expertise is. We know how we're valued in certain contexts or not in others. But I think that Jesus asks us, shows us, inspires us into being free of that when it comes to his kingdom. I want to suggest there is a state of the heart that the Spirit can give us that will prepare us for this life. And it looks a little bit like this. If we are kingdom of God people, it's very likely that in this world we won't be at the top. We won't be at the top of this world's structures. We won't be the ones receiving honour. We won't be the ones receiving power or grasping for power. We might not be famous for what that's worth. We might not be wealthy. We might not be the kind of people around us. There probably, likely, won't be anything prestigious about our way of life. And that's okay because the king died a criminal. The king's closest disciples were not the most trained rabbis. They were fishermen. Can you see how there's something freeing in this? Because I know so many of you labour in dark corners. I know the stories of some of you who've been, you know, rejected by friends. I know that many of you have worked hard all your life for others and you're not really sure if your soup is going to get you through. But that's fitting, right? Like, that's the kind of king that we serve. That's the kind of kingdom that we're in. I use the word likely. It's likely these things won't come your way. Because, of course, there's also amazing people even in this community who have real influence, who got out blessed financially, have some sort of power in the field. It raises us up for a particular reason in those fields. It is the case that if you work hard, blessings come your way. If you live a life of integrity, some things will just work for you. The challenge for us if we find ourselves in that position is to stay true to the king. Stay true to the values and ethics of the kingdom where honour flows down and love flows out. To be a servant, whatever the station we're raised or lowered to 
in life. That is kingdom living. So the upside down kingdom. Formatting's gone a bit funny there, but if we're kingdom people, we're, we're not so concerned with where we are relative to others. Jesus has given us freedom from the grind, right? Like knowing where we're at, the pecking order. But we are people who see honour flowing down to our king who came as a lowly servant, to die as a criminal, either flowing down to people who see that him and follow in that way, serving him. And so it means that love flows out of us when we have that kind of liberty into the world. The Gospel of Mark uh, makes a big deal about seeing. And interestingly, in this story, I've cut it off short. If you look at it in the Greek, there's a part that I didn't have a chance to get to. Does anyone know what it's about? It's about the healing of a man called Bartimaeus. He couldn't see, and then Jesus touched him, and he saw. And that's Mark's way of saying, this is what it's all about. It's not about physical sight. It's about, can you see the kingdom? Can you see the kingdom? Can you see this upside-down way that God's going about his work in the world? It's such a privilege to stand up here and to look out and say, I can, I can see it. I can see it in you. Could you stand? I want to pray for you and then we'll worship. Because, you know, I know, as I said, there's many of you who, I mean, you're just unsung heroes. You deserve. You deserve crowns. It's not the way it works, (laughs) at least on this side of eternity. But Jesus is with you, right? Like, if you are in that dark corner, in your labouring, if if your hard work and your dedication is going unrecognised, that you're sure you'll get through your retirement years, that makes sense to me if you're a subject of the King. At the same time, I, I know that God has raised many of you up my prayer for you is that you would be infected with the spirit of the servant king in those places and you would be someone who sends honour to the bottom and out of whom love would abide. God, we thank you for the liberty of being released from striving, from worrying about where we're at We thank you that you showed us this strange power that makes the universe spin, that will be the salvation of the universe. Love that cares not for itself or its status, but seeks the best of others for others. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fall on us in this because we can't balance that upside-down pyramid ourselves. We need you. Lord, make the currency of our lives be that gold that weights the whole thing, your great love. Amen.